Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. You will need a Bible. We'll be in God's Word together in Genesis 9. We'll also be looking at Leviticus 18 and Luke 18. Look with me at Genesis 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 18, and we're really picking up where we left off last week. And so Genesis 9, we'll begin reading in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him for his help and understanding it. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work giving us understanding of your word, that you would bless your word so that we hear the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking by the spirit through his word, and so that we are transformed, so that our minds are not conformed to the pattern of this world, but are transformed by this renewing work done by your Spirit through the Word. We pray, Father, that those who do not know Christ, as they hear the Word, would come to know Him, that your Spirit would be ever attentive to bring them to saving faith. We know he is the one who is powerful to do it. We pray that he would. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we left off last week, where I kind of cut this sermon in half because I realized I wasn't going to finish this, we had seen that Ham had just been saved from the flood. If you remember, Noah and his sons and his daughters-in-law and his wife had been saved through the flood, and Ham was one of those sons who was saved from the flood. And we had seen that Ham, upon the first occasion of seeing his father sin, his father who is told to us as being one upon whom God had favor, who had shown grace, his father who we'd been told was blameless and righteous in his generation, a man who obeyed the Lord in all that he commanded, a man who was godly through whom God covenanted or with whom God covenanted, The first time he sees his father sin, Ham pridefully seizes upon his father's sin in order to delight in and mock 
his godly father. And we learn an important lesson about the heart of man that is not owned by the grace of God. It is a heart that pridefully delights in the falls and sins of others. A heart that wants to expose and shame the sinner rather than cover and honor them. It is not a heart of love. Remade by the Spirit, like the Son. For we know that the heart that loves is the heart that covers a multitude of sins. In the face of such great grace from the Lord shown to us, it would seem that our hearts would be trained toward graciousness toward others, wouldn't it? Think of the Pharisee in Luke 18. And you can turn to Luke 18. Keep your hand in Genesis 9. But I want to think for a minute of this man in Luke 18. He is a man who knows God's great redemptive work toward his people. He's a Pharisee, which means he's a committed religious man of Judaism. He knows the mighty works of God In redeeming his people, he knows how God has continually been gracious to Israel in the face of her sin. He knows this. And yet, in spite of this, he's a man filled with pride. So look at Luke 18 and verse 9. He also, that being Jesus, also told this parable to some, now notice this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, here's the prayer, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the man who knows the Lord knows his sin and knows his need for the mercy and grace of God. He cries out to the Lord for mercy, not even able to lift his eyes to heaven, knowing he doesn't deserve to be in God's presence. The religious man, in this case, does not know the Lord. He trusts in his own righteousness. This man is filled with pride. And even in prayer, prayer, the one point at which you would think we would be most humble, while we're recognizing that God is God and we are not. Even in prayer, he's looking, he's looking at the failings and sins of others. He's rejoicing 
He's rejoicing that he's not like those other folks who were really a mess. He's not overcome with the blessedness and love and graciousness of God toward him. Thus, he's all too happy to find his own justification in seeing himself as better than others. Sovereign grace, when your head is bowed low in humility before the Lord, you are not able to take notice in and exult in the failures and foibles of others around you. But we know that even as believers, this insidious pride overtakes us, doesn't it? We can and really do forget the grace of God toward us, the grace that we've been shown, and we begin to scratch and claw at self-justification by taking some small pleasure in the sins and falls of others. Perhaps it proves our point maybe about someone that we knew that person was a problem and others didn't see it, and now they finally see it. Children, do you ever laugh at or take pleasure in when someone else fails or falls? Like, think about your brothers and sisters. Kids, think about it. Do you know the difference between telling on your brother and sister and being a tattletale? You know what the difference is? If you're seeing another child, let's say your sibling, doing something dangerous, harmful, or wrong, then you should tell on them for their own good. You should tell on them for their own good. But if you're telling on them, not because you're concerned for them, but because you're happy to see them get in trouble, then that exposes something sinful in your heart. We do not always know the exact reason that we take joy in the failures and falls of others. Our own hearts are so wicked and twisted, we don't always know why, but we do. Perhaps we harbor some sense that this other person being such a mess is some kind of consolation to me, right? That I'm on the right track. Maybe we fail to believe that we are vulnerable to a spectacular fall into sin ourselves. So we impress ourselves with regard to ourselves by way of comparison with those we deem weaker than us. You know you do it. Parents, you're raising your children. You look over at other parents and go, thank God we don't do that. Husbands and wives, you look over at other couples and say, you know how this goes. We lose sight of the fact that, but by the grace of God go I. We don't really in our core believe what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. We don't really believe this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Rather, we think we are something. At least something better than that drunk, or that adulterer, or that drug addict, or that porn addict, or that lazy glutton, to quote Paul. Cretans are always lazy gluttons, evil beasts. You remember that? And rather than 
humbly and gently covering the other person's shame and restoring the repentant, we seize the opportunity to gloat and to gossip. And that's the trouble with Ham. That's the trouble with Ham. Ham is gloating in his father's sin, and he's gossiping to his brothers about it. In doing so, he's acting like his father, the devil. What did Satan do in Genesis 3? He tempted Adam and Eve to sin in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate of it, their nakedness was exposed and they were ashamed. And Satan was seeking to expose the shameful nakedness of Adam and Eve. How did the Lord respond to Adam and Eve's shameful nakedness? They attempted, Adam and Eve attempted to cover it themselves, but they could not. And so the Lord graciously covered their shameful nakedness with a garment of animal skins. Think of God's kindness in the face of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Satan comes to him and says, listen, I know God has offered you everything except that one tree. You can't eat from it. He's not really good. He knows that tree is good and he won't let you have it. He's not really good. And Adam and Eve believe that lie. And yet in the face of believing that wicked lie and rebelling against God, God shows his goodness even further in covering their shameful nakedness. What, in parallel, did Shem and Japheth do in the face of their father's fall, in the face of their father Noah's shameful nakedness? They acted like the Lord, didn't they? Shem and Japheth covered his nakedness with a garment. That language in Genesis 3 of seeing their nakedness and being ashamed is the same Hebrew language as what you see in Genesis 9 where they, he saw his father's nakedness in the case of Ham or in the case of the two brothers. They did not see their father's nakedness. Ham, like Satan, tried to expose his father's nakedness, if you will. And Shem and Japheth, like the Lord, as those who are, if you will, representing the seed of the woman, covered, covered their father's nakedness. And this morning we're going to look at the prophetic oracles that come on the heels of these actions. That's a way of, if you will, me summing up last week. What we're going to do, look at this morning is the curse upon Ham. The curse upon Ham in verses 24 and 25. And then the blessing upon Shem and Japheth in verses 26 and 27. So let's look first at the curse upon Ham. Look at Genesis 9, verse 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be 
to his brothers. Noah is giving a prophetic oracle here. To this point in Genesis, only the Lord had spoken a blessing or a curse. Now here, God's prophet Noah is going to speak a curse and a blessing on behalf of the Lord. And Noah begins by cursing Ham's family, namely Canaan, Ham's youngest son, which is a way of cursing Ham's entire genealogical line. And he says, Canaan shall be a slave of slaves. Look there at verse 25. He said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants or a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. Noah's prophesying the defeat, if you will, of the seed of the serpent represented in Ham's line. Ham's family line will be wicked and will be humiliated as they are defeated by the seed of the woman. This is not merely a prophetic oracle about Ham, but about his seed, who represent the seed of the serpent. If you remember Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will be in enmity with one another. And the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent's head. And here Ham's line is representing the seed of the serpent. And Shem's line is representing the seed of the woman. The Canaanites are the seed of Satan. They're idolaters. Now, I want you to understand this. This is not because ethnically they're descended from Ham. This is because morally they're committed to wickedness. They're committed to wickedness. They're idolaters. It becomes so clear in Leviticus 18. Okay, so I want you to turn to Leviticus 18 and... You'll see a bit of this there. I want to remind you of the context, though. Israel has just come out of Egypt. The Lord has brought them out in the exodus from Egypt. Now, you're going to see this when we go back to Genesis 10. Egypt is a son of Ham. Egypt is a son of Ham. You'll see that in the line. But Israel's just come out in the exodus from Egypt... God has given them a tabernacle where he dwells with them. And then in Leviticus, we read the story of how they might enter that tabernacle. And as we're going through that story or those instructions, they receive instructions with regard to their going to the land. They're on their way to the promised land. They're going to the land where the Canaanites are, the land of Canaan. And they've been told you're going to go there and you're going to destroy those people. Now, look at Leviticus 18, 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. Do not act like a Hamite. Egypt is a son of Ham. Don't do what they do where you lived. Keep going. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Also a Hamite, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now he then goes on to talk about what the Canaanites do, what the Egyptians did in their land, and what the Canaanites do in their land. And you want to talk about a horrific people? Read the description. Not now, but later. 
This is one where you do your family Bible reading with your children and all sorts of questions are brought up that you're not always anxious to answer. But let's just say they make our current day wicked cities look pretty righteous. They practice every sort of abominable sexual sin, every sort, and they also cast their children to death as sacrifices to their god Molech. And he goes on and look at verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. See, all these nations have been participating in all this. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. So neither the Israelite, native Israelites, nor the, if you will, Gentile strangers who come in among them. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Note the emphasis that the Egyptians and the Canaanites practiced as custom all this wickedness. The Israelites are not coming into the land filled with noble savages. That's not the kind of land they're coming into, or ignorant people who just didn't know any better. That's not the land they're coming into. They're coming into the land to make just war at the command of God on an utterly wicked people with whom God has long been patient. You can see that in Genesis 15. Do you know why you're going to be held slavery or captive in Egypt for 400 years? Because the sin of the Amorites, that's those people in Canaan, is not yet complete. I remain patient with them. But, like I said, God is long-suffering, but not forever suffering. He will avenge. He will bring justice. And justice, we're being told, is coming for the Canaanites. And all those people that we're talking about here are descended from Ham. And they're to be destroyed from the land by the seed of the woman who at this point is Israel, as God says, my firstborn son, Exodus chapter 4. In other words, Noah's oracle, this is what I'm trying to get you to, Noah's oracle is underwriting what you're going to see in the book of Joshua when the people go in and conquer the Canaanites. As the Lord sends Israel in in judgment to wipe out his wicked people. Now we're going to see this curse immediately in Genesis. So look at Genesis 10. Go back and look at Genesis 10 and you'll see the curse upon Ham immediately. You'll hear it. We'll just go over some of this genealogy. Notice the next genealogical section, which we'll pick up next week, says these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, 10.1. Sons were born to them after the flood. Remember I told you Genesis is arranged around genealogies. Now we're at the genealogies of Noah's three sons. And notice the first son that will be mentioned is Japheth. 
He's not the oldest. Shem actually is. But Shem comes last because of what Moses is doing with the line of Shem. But here they, he's reversed the order, if you will. So the sons of Japheth, you're going to see those. But go down to the sons of Ham, verse 6. The sons of Ham. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. You guys picking up? Those are wicked nations Israel deals with. Go down to verse 8, just to give you some sample. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. You're going to see that in Genesis 11. Keep going. Go down to verse 11. From that land, he went into Assyria. You guys remember this? The Assyrians carry off the northern kingdom of Israel. They're wicked. And built Nineveh. You remember Nineveh? Another wicked kingdom to whom Jonah goes to preach the gospel. And then if you keep going, verse 13, you see Egypt fathered Ludum. And you go on and look at the middle section of verse 14. From whom the Philistines came. You remember the uncircumcised Philistines from whom Goliath came? Verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar and as far as Gaza and in the direction of, where else? Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebuim, as far as Lasha. Now, are you guys noticing the names of these cities? Sodom, Gomorrah, Nineveh, Assyria, Egypt, Canaan, all the Ites, Jebusites, Amorites. These are all descended from Canaan, or if you will, from Ham. They're all coming from Ham. It's Ham's family from whom the wicked kingdoms of Babel and Egypt and Canaan and Sodom and Gomorrah and Assyria and Nineveh all come. Those kingdoms are the wicked kingdoms of men who oppose the Lord and his anointed. So in the cursing of Canaan, you're hearing the curse come upon the whole genealogical line of Ham. You're actually seeing where all the trouble with Israel as far as their opposition begins right here. Ham's people will be like their wicked father, the serpent. Now let's see how Noah blesses Shem and Japheth. The blessing on Shem and Japheth. Look at Genesis 9, 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant or his slave. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him, that being Japheth, dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant or his slave. Now, let's begin by noting something about this blessing. Do you notice what the blessing actually says? It says, Cursed be Canaan. Now it says, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now, I want to come back to this. I want to come back to this saying. But for now, I want to look at three other parts of this blessing, which are going to lead us to a question that I think this blessing answers. 
So I want to come back to that blessing. But let's look at three other parts of this blessing first. First part I want to look at. The blessing of Shem includes Canaan being his servant or his slave. You see there? And let Canaan, end of verse 26, be his servant or a slave. Now we see this come to fruition when Israel enters the promised land, don't we? They conquer the peoples. They take some as slaves. We also see it to be the case under David and Solomon, both kings of Israel. Second, the blessing to Japheth is that his people will flourish. May God enlarge Japheth. In other words, the blessing is that the nations that come from Japheth will be fruitful and multiply. They're going to enlarge and spread out. And who are his nations? Look at Genesis 10 and verse 2. Genesis 10 and verse 2. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphoth, and Togormah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now you might go, yes, I recognize all those nations right off. I know exactly where they are. A couple of them you recognize because you've read about, but these are the nations who go north into Macedonia and Greece to that region, to parts of Europe and the coastlands. Keep that in your mind. Don't forget, that's where the people of Japheth go. Macedonia, Greece, Europe, the coastlands. Look at the third one, third part of this. We learn that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. Look at verse 27 again. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let the Canaanites, if you will, be his slaves also. Now we do see the peoples of Japheth enslave Canaanites in the Old Testament. We see that happen as they enslave Canaanites in the Old Testament. But here is what we never see in the Old Testament. We never see Japheth enter the tent of Shem. I just want you to stop and dwell on that for a second. May God enlarge Japheth, Macedonia, Greece, parts of Europe, the coastlands. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tent of Shem, and let the Canaanites be his slaves as well. We see him enlarged and spread. We see in the Old Testament at times them enslave the Canaanites. We never see Japheth, those peoples, dwell in the tent of Shem. What does that mean to dwell in his tent? It means to come into his household, to be a part of his people. We never see that happen. We see some men from Japheth come to Solomon, but we never see Japheth join Israel. So what's happening here? What's happening here? Well, to answer that question, I want to return to the original blessing of Shem. Look there, verse 26. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now, why is the blessing, blessed be the God of Shem? Matthew Poole, a a Puritan commentator, asks and answers this question really well. Listen to what he says. Question, here he says, question. What is this to Shem? For it is not Shem, but God who is here blessed. 
Answer, Shem also is here blessed. And that in the highest degree. Now, how is Shem blessed in the highest degree? Because the Lord has here declared himself to be Shem's God. Now, for God to be said any man's God is everywhere mentioned as the height of blessedness. But the phrase is here justly varied. The curse is fixed upon Ham because man alone, listen to this, the curse is fixed upon Ham because, and his line, if you will, his progeny, because man alone is the author of his own sin and the cause of his own ruin. But because God, because God is the author and fountain of all the good that man either does or receives, therefore the blessing is emphatically given to God, who alone does the work, and whose right alone it is to receive all the glory. Yet, he receives that, so as it also redounds to Shem. Did you hear that, Sovereign Grace? We alone are the authors of our own sin. Thus, we deserve the curse. God alone is the author and fountain of all good. Even all the good that we do or that we receive. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, what does Paul say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, I'll work it out. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. God is the author and fountain of all good, even all the good that we do or that we receive, so all the glory goes to God. So God's name is blessed. You do something righteous by the grace of God. You serve someone in some way in which God is honored and they are built up. Your first thought ought to be, blessed be the name of the Lord. For he is the author and fountain of all good. All good that I do comes from him, not from me. So all the glory goes to him. Yet all the glory goes to him in a manner that it also redounds to us. Remember the good news, sovereign grace. In love, the father sent his son to purchase grace for us. And the father and the son sent the spirit to unite us to Christ through faith. And thus to apply that grace to us. And so we also are blessed. We also are blessed. We receive honor and glory through our union and communion with our triune God. There's no greater blessing than to hear that God is your God and you are his people. No greater blessing. The blessing to Shem is this. You are the Lord's Shem And the Lord is yours. And that blessing is all of grace. All the good that Shem and Japheth did was because of the gracious working of God in them. And they are rewarded for God's kind work in them by receiving the blessing of hearing that they are God's people. Is that ever amaze you? Your works in and of yourself are not acceptable to God. And your works in and of yourself Bring nothing to the table. Nothing. 
but God works good works through you. He blesses those in his son, and then he rewards you for them. And they're all of him. Now, this is immediately true for Shem. We will see that when God calls Shem's offspring. Who's Shem's offspring? Abraham. We're going to see the blessing here. And in fact, we're going to see the same blessing come upon Abraham from the hands, if you will, of Melchizedek. As he comes and says, blessed be the God of Abram. All the blessed promises of God come to all the families of the earth through Abraham and his offspring. That's Shem's line. But to return to our prior question, and really this is bringing us to a prior question, how does this include Japheth? We understand how the blessings of God to Shem come through Abraham and Israel and blesses all those who are Abraham's offspring, but how does that include Japheth? How has he been brought to dwell in the tents of Shem? How have the nations descended from him been brought to receive the blessing of God being their God? Now, several of the church fathers and reformers rightly pointed to the blessing of Japheth as being messianic, both to Shem and to Japheth as being messianic. Why? Because nowhere in the Old Testament does Japheth come into the tents of Shem. Nowhere. But we do see a prophecy of it in the Old Testament. We see a prophecy in Isaiah 66. And you can just listen to this. Isaiah 66, 18 and 19. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. To Tarshish. Remember that? From Japheth. Paul and Lud, who draw the bow. To Tubal and Javon. Japheth, Japheth, Japheth. To the coastlands, far away, Japheth, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. You hear the sons of Japheth mentioned here. And Japheth's family includes the Gentile nations like Greece, the coastlands, and others in Europe. So when is the promise to Japheth seen as being fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled in the New Testament. This is why you need to rip out the page between the Old Testament and New Testament and just call it the Bible. It's God's word. It's seen there. This promise to Japheth, this blessing upon him, is fulfilled in the book of Acts. I want you to think about that. Noah is giving a prophetic oracle that happens in Acts. You can see that as the Gentiles come into Abraham's family through faith in Christ, and James refers to it, in Acts 15, as building the tent of David, who is the son of Abraham, as the Gentiles come in, David's tent, Abraham's tent, is being built. The Gentiles are coming into Shem's tent, Japheth's family. You can see that as the Macedonian man calls to Paul. And Paul's sent by the Lord to preach the gospel in Greece and Europe Thus, to answer the promise 
made to Japheth. In other words, the blessing to Shem and Japheth is a prophetic oracle about the supreme blessedness that can be known being extended to all peoples. All peoples will hear, I am your God, and you are my people. But before I conclude, let me press this one step further. Because here's the magnificent, superabounding grace of God in the next step. Even Ham, even Ham will be brought in to the tent of Shem. Listen to Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. That's Ham's line. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel, listen, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. Do you hear this gloriously gracious good news? The Father is graciously elected to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation through his Son and by the Spirit. Even the most wicked of peoples will be gathered in as God's people through the means of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the grace of God. What did any of us do to deserve this? Not one thing. No thing. We deserve the curse for our sin, and yet we hear the greatest blessing that can be heard in Christ. God is our God, and we are his people. That's why we're gathered here to worship. Do you understand that? We don't come to just do a religious duty. Though it is a religious duty, you're commanded to gather with Christ's people. That's clear in Scripture for worship. But we don't come just to fulfill an obligation, though we do. We come because we know the greatest blessing that can be known. God is our God, and we're his people, and we want to gather with his people and worship our God and know the blessing of dwelling in his presence with his people, the greatest blessing that we can have. That's why I mean it when I say this. People think I'm kidding. I will never, never voluntarily, understand that you can be hospitalized, tragedies can happen. I will never voluntarily miss gathering with God's people on the Lord's day. Never. Because there's nothing greater on earth I can imagine as a blessing to me than ascending Mount Zion with God's people and hearing from the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, and having his spirit dwell among us. What is better than that? There might be things that are more fun or entertaining or exciting in some way. But there is no greater blessing you can know. None. Our greatest blessing is that Christ is ours. And in Christ, God is ours. And we're his. We know him in his son and we draw near to him and commune with him. That's also why we proclaim the name of Jesus to our friends. 
and our neighbors and our coworkers, not just because we're commanded to speak about Jesus, but because we know no greater blessing than Jesus, and so all we want to do is talk about him. If you're communing regularly with the Lord, then you want to talk about the Lord. Parents, you know this if you're raising children. You love your kids. You're communing with your children and meditating upon your children, fellowship with your children all the time. And so every time you get a chance, you can't wait to tell people about your kids. You'll even intrude into conversations and tell them more about your kids than anybody actually really wants to know. But you want to say it because you love your kids. Husbands, you're this way with your wives when you love your wife. You want to tell people about the glories of your wife, just what you want to do. Well, when you commune with the Lord and know him, then you want to tell people about him. He's your supreme blessing. That's why we send missionaries to the ends of the earth. Because we desire that the nations know this blessing as well. Not merely because we are commanded to, but because we are privileged with a great blessing to. And as we do this, we're mindful of this incredible reality that in this scene with Noah and his sons, we hear the blessing of Christ that will come to us. You hear that? Here in Genesis 9, you're hearing the blessing of Christ that came to you. And we hear the promise of God, this blessing of Christ will go to all the nations. It seems like a simple thing to send missionaries, and it really is, and to pray for them, and to care for them in a variety of ways like we do whether that's ongoing support or like our Christmas missionary offerings coming up. That seems like a simple thing to do, and it is, but have you ever thought about it as you having the privilege of being the means through which God is fulfilling what was spoken all the way back in Noah's oracle? Have you ever thought about praying for your unbelieving friends or telling them about Christ as the means God is using to fulfill all this that Noah is saying here? We likely don't think about it that way. May God make us mindful of what a blessing it is to be the means he is using, the instruments in his hand to fulfill his purposes, and what an even greater blessing it is to receive the reward for his gracious work in and through us. You know what that reward is? We get him. We get him. If you haven't yet grasped that heaven without Christ is hell, then you haven't understood your reward yet. Christ is the reward. He is the supreme blessing of your heavenly reward. You get him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand how we're blessed in your son that we see this story that begins all the way back with our ancestors, the constant, relentless story of our sin in the face of your goodness and the superabounding grace that were shown in your Son. We pray that we would give thanks for this, that we would desire to dwell where you are, that we would want to commune with your son, with you, through him above all.
by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We pray you would do this work in us, and that as a result of that communion, we would want to speak of our great blessedness, our Lord Jesus Christ. We would want to give what we have in our time and effort and prayers to see him known both here and all the earth. And we'd want to forsake all other things for the sake of knowing him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.